Welcome to Get Real, Talking Mental Health and Disability. This is our special podcast series, Skills for Support Workers. The history of Australia's First Peoples spans many tens of thousands of years. Since white settlers colonised Australia around 200 years ago, Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population has experienced generations of trauma. For many, the impact of this trauma continues today. This podcast provides an introduction to this history and how you can show your support for Australia's First Peoples. Ellen talks with Robin Oxley, a proud Tharawal woman from southwest Sydney, with family connections to Yorta Yorta along the Murray River near Echuca in Victoria. Robin is a lecturer in criminology for the School of Social Sciences at Western Sydney University. Her research interests focus on Aboriginal affairs within the criminal justice system. Robin will provide some insight to the history and impact of colonisation on Indigenous Australians. Then Belinda, a care coordinator at Mentis Assist, will share her experience and tips as a non-Indigenous person who has worked with Indigenous communities. Hello, my name is Ellen Maple, and I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the original custodians of this land to elders past, present and emerging on whose country this recording is taking place and of wherever you are listening to us from. Um, I'd love for us to begin with hearing your story and your perspective on Australia's history as a vulnerable woman with your connection to Yorta Yorta. Before I begin, I'd like to extend your uh, acknowledgement of country and pay my respects to the elders on where I am currently residing, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. And I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present, as well as pay my respects to my elders past and present as well from Tharawal and Yorta Yorta. I guess to start with, I wanted to talk a little bit about truth-telling. There's been you know, constant control, there's been racist policies and legislation, which equates to a great deal of mistrust between Aboriginal people and European colonisers. And from my perspective as a Tharawal and Yorta Yorta woman, when it comes to, you know, the history or the historical context of Aboriginality and what it means to me, I mean, I, I grew up on country, I grew up with family, so I was extremely lucky to be around my culture, my language and uh, my ways of being and knowing and doing. When we were growing up, we did a lot of things on country and we learnt a lot about the land, we learned a lot about the animals, we learned a lot about the weather and when to eat the right foods. When things were growing on land, we knew what time of the year it was. So, you know, we really kind of were taught by, by our elders, you know, the ways of how we connect and how we connected through land, through kinship, through family members and even animals, like we're all related in our culture. So it was really nice to be able to grow up in, in that respect. And I think we move through our life and we experience more and more outside of our culture. And, you know, I've moved around quite a bit. You know, I've learned a lot about the historical context of Aboriginal people and the, the government in particular. And there was protection policies that really controlled the movements of Aboriginal people and forced assimilation. And we had child removal policies. And this is where this you know, great deal of trust comes from. You know, I can talk about my experience, independent visitor program with the Commissioner for Children and Young People, and I speak to mainly the Aboriginal kids who are in youth justice. Going to these spaces, we need to be really mindful of uh, intergenerational trauma that's occurred. So like I say, we've got, you know, we have the stolen generations, which was a policy that forcibly removed children from families. So we've got a loss of culture there, which, which is why they're called the stolen generations, because we've lost that generation. So how that impacts on the future generations um, is very clear in the way that, 
you know, we've, we've seen overrepresentation within the criminal justice system as well through the removal of children and forced assimilation. And, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to talk our language. We weren't allowed to practice our language. Um, we weren't allowed to practice our culture. So these policies that were implemented really impacted on our ability to connect with each other as we did pre-colonisation. These ideas and these stereotyping of Aboriginal people as being inherently criminal or drunk or unhealthy or no um, connection to education, have no interest in employment, housing is very poor. You know, these social constructs come into play through these policies and legislation. And the word that we're not saying is the racism that comes through. It's stereotyping, certainly, but I'm sure that the impact and the ongoing impact of some of that history is the ongoing racism that um, Aboriginal people are still experiencing today living in Australia. Definitely. If you look back at history, we had the frontier wars, which were massacres that occurred towards Aboriginal communities. So we had quite a few communities that were murdered and massacred on their country in order for the European settlers to come along and, um, you know, farm the land. The impact that that's had on Aboriginal communities has been passed down through into generation to generation. And we talk about these things. We have a truth-telling in our culture where we share orally the, the histories and, and so forth of these frontier wars. And not only about the frontier wars, but, you know, we talked about the Protection Acts and these Protection Acts control the movements of, of Aboriginal people, who they married, where they lived, whether they spoke language, whether they were able to engage in culture, but mainly it was about the forcible removal of children. and removing a child from a home under the premise of protection, which uh, is questionable, who's being protected. We, we already mm. have asked these questions over and over. However, the stereotyping of Aboriginal people is neglecting their children in order for them to be removed and forced assimilation into white society has had generational impact after, after generation. And it not only comes down to the fact that they were removed, it was who removed them as well. So we had police officers who removed these children from their families. So there's a lot of mistrust around policing. And with intergenerational trauma, you'll you'll see that, you know, three generations, four generations down the track, they still won't trust police and they'll still keep their children away from police. Um, they'll protect them with them, with them, their bodies, their arms, they move children right away physically. So, you know, it's not intergenerational trauma is not just a, a, a mental impact. It's also a physical impact, what we've seen around policing. Even if we look at overrepresentation within prisons, we know that Aboriginal people make up just over 3% of Australia's population, but they make up, you know, almost 30% of the prison population. So mm. we've got this disparity of numbers and this disproportionality and um, what it comes down to is the over-surveillance of Aboriginal people and it's through those policies that that's, that's occurred and continues to, to occur today. So one of the things that we've included in this, in this podcast is our acknowledgement of country. And some people might be wondering, what's that all about and, and why is it important? The purpose of acknowledgement of country is to pay respects you know, to the original and ongoing owners. The lands of what is now termed Australia has never been ceded. Sovereignty has never been ceded. We've never given up our lands. So, you know, to have an acknowledgement is just to to pay respects and recognise that the land that you're on belongs to whatever nation you're standing on, the land that they're standing on. So, you know, and it should always be conducted in a sincere manner. So before you begin, you know, your seminar or your talk, always find out, do a bit of research and find out whose land you're on. And even if you say it wrong, it doesn't matter, you tried. That's the biggest thing is that you've actually acknowledged that you're on someone else's land and you're paying respects to that. Now, a welcome to country is a lot different and it's usually performed by a traditional owner. 
on the lands on where you are standing or where you are gathering. And a welcome to country has been part of Aboriginal culture for thousands of years. It's not a it's not a new um, concept. And you know, it's important that we you know when we cross borders and we cross territories that we ask for permission. And when we ask for permission, we get a welcome to country, which then protects us and protects our spirits as we pass through. But we also have to abide by the rules and protocol of that particular nation or that particular tribe. So there's a difference between the two of them. And welcome to country usually will have, you know, a smoking ceremony as well, which cleanses the the evil spirits, whereas acknowledgement is, is not so formal. It's a chance to be an advocate. It's a chance to just show that you are um, aware of what is going on and political nature of what land means to Aboriginal people. Can you share any other kind of tips for how we can, as non-Indigenous people, can work to understand Indigenous people better? I think one of the biggest things is, you know, listen and believe what Aboriginal people say. Try and decolonise your Western way of thinking and ways of knowing and being and doing. For example, if someone is, is missing being on country, it's not a boarding pass to somewhere. It's they're missing that connection to country. So you know, reflect on what they're actually saying and and believe what they're saying, not just kind of brush over it and think that it's nothing because it means something to, to Aboriginal people. And I think always, you know, problem solving 101 is ask what the problem is, you know, and, and don't assume that Aboriginal people know what you're talking about. Sometimes there's a lot of jargon that they're not aware of or have not been exposed to before. So, um, you know, take a moment and just kind of break down what you're trying to ask, you know, in relation to health or whatever whatever you're trying to know converse with an Aboriginal person and I think one of the other biggest things take the time to reflect you know about the difficulties for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have had and their lived experiences make sure you centre those lived experiences because you know usually health systems are western they very rarely include Indigenous ways of knowing being and doing and to think about that in the way of you know we spoke about intergenerational trauma this mistrust about these services and who runs them and where the information's going and so forth. So just, yeah, just take the time to reflect and have a think about the history of that person's life and lived experiences. Let's hear from Belinda from Mentis Assist. Belinda, could you tell us a little bit about your own story and how you came to be knowledgeable in working with Indigenous people in Australia? Well, I started out really naive. I went to the Northern Territory in 1985. I was fresh out of St Kilda came from St Kilda in the 1980s, went to work up in the anthropology branch of the Northern Land Council, and that's where I got my cultural education from the Indigenous people in Darwin. I'm not of any person of colour or Indigenous Australian. So the reason that I was on this panel was to talk about, as a non-Indigenous person, to speak about working with Indigenous people and how tips and clues about how and what to do. So I do not by any means say that I speak on behalf of Aboriginal people. I'm here to offer a perspective as a worker who's worked with Indigenous people. When working with Aboriginal people, it's important to understand that there's not really any such thing as the Aboriginal community. Lots of people talk about the Aboriginal community, but within the Aboriginal community, you'll come across all manifestations of diversity, and that includes sexual orientation diversity, diversity of age, whether they're young people, whether they're elders. So diversity quite spans many different facets. 
You may find that someone will identify by saying, I'm Koori or I'm Murray or I'm Gamilaroi. People may frame their identities closer to the landholding unit that their cultural base comes from. I'd say when working with Aboriginal people, it's very much just like working with everybody else, except for the fact that you're actually dealing with people that have generations and generations of what they call intergenerational trauma. The lived experience of so much trauma on people has invoked a social impact that might see them be in more flight or fight mode Mm -hmm. rather than be more spiritually attuned. So there's also a big role in healing at the moment and people going to healing camps and exploring their own healing. So, I mean, we talked a bit before about diversity and the import- and the connection of self-identity to a broader group, but if that broader group is one that's been systemically marginalised and traumatised, then there's extra significance to, to membership. So maybe it would, as a worker we might be looking out for signs of trauma and maybe understanding a person's behaviour or relationship with us, that they may have had some really difficult experiences. I'd say it's really important to come from a a trauma-informed care perspective and to understand that Kuris in Victoria, there's also a lot of Nyungas and Nungas over here that have come over from the West. Kuris in Victoria have had a long history of social displacement and a lot of history of land occupation and usage and significant impact by colonisers. You hear stories about children being taken away from their parents, a lot of impact of Department of Health and Human Services, but that's not the essence of Aboriginal culture. There is there's strong family and kinship networks. People will talk about how important that their mother is, how important their grannies are. In Koori culture, when people talk about their grannies, they're actually talking about their grandchildren. And so the the mother-child and grandmother relationship, as it is in many cultures, is particularly strong and important. While we can, in our empathy, feel not necessarily sorry for someone, but develop a level of compassion to what they've gone through, there is the notion of we ought, from a strengths-based perspective, to as they say, focus on what's strong, not what's wrong. So when you work with people, it's also important to look at their strengths and to think, well, they've survived 100% of every day of what they've been through so far. So, And also to talk to people and say, well, how did you feel about that? Or what did you do last time this happened to you? So that you're encouraging the person to explore the narrative of their own life so that they can draw on their own strength and own resilience, and that can make the person feel uh, a little bit more powerful within themselves. Once you start working with somebody, with anybody who has um, a high degree or any trauma in their background, if you're not really a specialist in trauma, it may be best not to ask direct questions about the trauma, but say that I can refer you to a trauma counselling service or to link, especially if you're working with Koori people, to link them in with Aboriginal services that can provide culturally delivered safe practice and safe care to people that's delivered by and for other Aboriginal people as well so that the person feels as though they've got some kind of cultural comfort and they're not being dictated to or spoken with by somebody that isn't affiliated or has any uh, vague understanding of Koori culture. All right, so what would be your 
uh, number one tip for helping build an effective relationship with people from um, Indigenous cultures in Australia? I'd say my number one tip would be to know who to ask and what to ask. So go in with respectful curiosities and share something about yourself as well. It doesn't mean you talk about yourself, but I find that working with Koori people, especially as a support worker, which I've done in the past, there's more or less like an an equitable exchange of information. Sometimes when I work with anybody, I assess their language skills and I try to speak to the person at a level of language that they understand. I guess it's always important when you're working with someone to build a, a rapport that's based around the person and what they value and what they hold dear and pitched at a level that where you're being the ultimate communicator with them. Have genuine open-mindedness and not to be judgmental. Value someone as a human being But above all, be yourself. Don't pretend to be something that you're not because people will see through that and then immediately the barriers will go up and they they won't want to trust you. Why would someone want to trust you if you're not being yourself? So be yourself, ask some questions and be kind. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been um, great to hear from your experiences and to share your wisdom with our new support workers. So thank you very much.